um, how do you do it exactly? And of course, one would then say, well, just know the doubt, which uh, is a bit disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I need to know, do I bring my attention here or there, or what am I looking at exactly? And so Vipassana does open the ground for doubt, not quite sure, am I doing it right, am I not? Um, and so as we've been reflecting on, we can get to know that uh, the, the sense of doubt that comes up. And if we are very, if we do feel very secure with method, you know, we like to, to have you know, a, a strong focal point in our meditation and something that we feel we're doing in our meditation, then it might be quite useful to spend some time in our meditation just letting go of the method, just to notice what what are those states that come up when maybe we do feel a bit lost or not sure, because often in our daily life those kinds of states can be quite dominant uh, and, uh, and we, we don't really get much of a conscious relationship to them, there's more vague, nebulous, wafty unsure kinds of states of mind. And also if we, if we stay just with uh, you know, concentrating and refining the, the, um, the mind, then as we've talked about when we do go into everyday life, we, we can feel a little overwhelmed. So this Vipassana is really a bridge helping us to negotiate um, more movement, activity, uh, nebulous states, uncertainty, doubt, uh, to, to reflect on those. And then gradually also introduces us or reflects to us uh, the more subtle aspects of the Buddha's teaching. The insights into, uh, I was reflecting on last night with Kirisara so beautifully, the insights into uh, Anicca, Anicca, that everything's in a state of flux and flow and change, Anatta, that uh, there's no ultimate way we can define and locate a sense of objective self. It's a, a shifting, morphic kind of process. Feeling one moment like this, feeling another moment like that. These more subtle insights that the, the Buddha pointed to, um, and his primary teaching that Kirisaro mentioned last night, the reflection on the Four Noble Truths, were often teachings that were given when there was a sense of well-groundedness. A, a good context to, to deliver them within. Often the Buddha would start off with what brings well-being, what takes one to heaven, literally, to, 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 to realms of pleasure, to realms of refinement, realms of wellness. And so he would begin by teaching such things as a sila, precepts. If you want to know how to generate wholesome mind states, in one's life, then the uh, then uh, the whole area of of, of precepts and and some sense for the law of karma would be a way that the Buddha would often start cause and effect. We live in a causal realm. We experience the effects of many causes, perhaps most of them unknown to us, that have already been put in place. Uh, both causes from us individually and communally, and from family, society very complex web, cause and effect, but however we can intersect with that complexity with moments of awareness and conscious choice in terms of activity of, of speech and body and mind through purifying our intention. So this, this was really the base for all the teachings uh, that the Buddha gave, meditative teaching, was, a, was a, an appreciation for the, the exactness power and subtlety of, of this causal realm. And the place that we can intersect with it is, the, is, uh, is in our own sense of well-being, what gives rise to well-being and self-respect and a sense of belonging and integration with the world around us is when 
there's uh, an ability to actually sense what we do and what we say, how that can be for benefit, for wholesome outcome, or the opposite. So these two supporting factors for and for guiding karmic activity called hiri otapa, hiri, which means to really have a sense of not wishing to do that which will um, harm self, or if, if one has acted or said things that bring uh, a feeling of pain, to acknowledge that. Sometimes it's called a feeling of remorse, which is different than how we tend to interpret it in our in our cultural context, as, as guilt, we, we can make a sense of self, you know, something we, that happened, that had a painful repercussion, and then we create a, a guilty self, and the neurosis and complexity around that, where in the Buddhist teaching it's more clear, it's just like, just feel the effect, uh, to be able to feel the effect of what is done, that's either wholesome or, not, or unwholesome, is, is healthy. Uh, and if it's unwholesome, it's a bit painful, then it's healthy to feel it. It's unhealthy to make a, a compounded, complex, uh, neurotic sense of guilt. That's a, that's a, an unwholesome karma, but just to feel the effect so that it can inform us how to be in the future, maybe to guide our activity and our speech more carefully. So this is called hiri, this aspect of conscience, that when it's when it's healthy, it's a guardian. It guards our mind and heart. It guards the world. When it's when it's eroded and overwhelmed, and it's not functioning in a healthy way, then we can't have a barometer to get a sense of when we're in harmony and when we're out of harmony. So this hirian and otapa. Otapa is the, the sense of 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 fear or dread at the result of being out of harmony. You know, doing things that would actually create harm, that if we don't have a sense of something that can emerge in the heart, that this creates harm, then, then we have no guardian. And, and we internally or externally fall into chaos, either internally, psychologically. Our internal world is quite chaotic, or the society, when that, those two faculties aren't functioning, becomes um, de- um, chaotic and degraded. So. These are considered human faculties that are very precious, not always comfortable ones, uh, but the base of that which guides karmic activity. So the Buddha would talk, first of all, to those interested in the way of awakening, of really honing those, hiriotipa, which allows, when they're developed, it allows for us to have a sense of uh, trust for the self, trusting and respect, which allows us to relax, uh, and not to be at uh, war and uh, receiving all the time consequences of uh, ways we've been and ways we are that are, that are, that are painful. And then when we have uh, part, it means that we can have a feeling of belonging to a greater whole, belonging in a way where there's a feeling of warmth and trust, connectedness. So these are very important in community. And in society, when they break down, it's, it's, uh, we live in more distrustful spaces, paranoid spaces. And then, in relationship to that, the, the Buddha taught dana, sila dana, these two bases for a sense of well-being, a sense of wholeness, the ability dana is to to feel also our interconnectedness as part of the flow of the whole that we can offer out from a place of wellness, we can offer, we can be, you know, serve, we can connect, we can feel ourselves as part of the flow of life, that things come through us and we allow them uh, to be shared. And uh, so that this, when it's highly developed, dana, barometer, or generosity of heart, it's, uh, it's a base for enormous wholesome karma in one's life. And in fact, one of the quotes of the Buddha said, if we knew the power of generosity, we wouldn't even let a meal pass without sharing some of it. There's an enormously powerful, wholesome karma to activate in our lives. Not necessarily in material ways, but just this sense of being able to offer out allows us to feel 
uh, a greater sense of connectedness if done with mindfulness, with care, with consideration. And then these, the beginnings of these meditative practices, samadhi, samatha, and learning to develop the capacity to feel well that's not dependent upon the circumstance around, the sensory input, or the, whether things are going well or not, or whether we have a lot of money in the bank or not, or whether we're famous or not, or whether we're successful or not, uh, which, is, which are quite, can be quite arbitrary and, and uh, quite uh, undependable. So this samatha samadhi that we've been practicing allows the base of wellness, the wholeness, integration. So all of these factors in place allow a context within which these more subtle teachings and explorations and inquiries can be placed. And I was just uh, reflecting that in our more contemporary context that perhaps those more traditional approaches to um, creating well-being, wholeness, a positive sense of self, if you like, relative self, within which one can then apply these more subtle teachings, it's probably more to do with a psychological sense of health. Uh, I just wanted to reflect around that a little bit um, in terms of uh, applying the meditative work that um, we do have besides a physical body besides having this physical vehicle to care for as best we can, whatever shape or form it comes in um, that uh, our responsibility to, to care for that is our vehicle through this life in the same way we have a psychological or egoic body and uh, there's a lot of confusion sometimes around you know, what, whether, whether that's when we hear the teaching of non-self you know, whether, uh, well, how does that apply to the, the reality that of course there is a sense of self <laughs> that operates and is very tangible in our everyday life um, and if we prematurely try and crush that or avoid that or dismiss that then we, we have problems if we can't honour it for the vehicle and the function that it provides helping us to negotiate uh, the world around us the physical, psychological, egoic body is, uh, is that which helps us function and uh, it, you know, through those forms expressed uh, more and more as the, as the heart is purified, the more luminous nature of mind and heart, the freer nature of mind and heart. Not in spite of them, not in spite of the body and, and uh, our existence as a, as a, in, within an egoic and psychological formation, however impermanent it is. So the health, looking at health in that, bearing in mind that one perhaps never has a totally healthy uh, psychological framework to work within, that's probably pretty rare in our society. But a lot of us uh, grow up often with quite um, damaged <coughs> psychological uh, frameworks that we work within, that, we, that the developmental stages that perhaps one um, should go through to develop that which is wholesome or healthy sense of self uh, are not always in place and then it's important to recognise that if that's the case because it, it has repercussions when we apply these subtle truths um, many, many of us in our modern context grow up um, feeling sometimes not part of a, a, a greater sense of belonging and affirmed or accepted for what we are rather than what we perhaps need to become um, and this can leave a sense of lack of, of worth or, or lack of self-love in a relative sense and then um, connected to that or put on top of that if we have ways of using these teachings to avoid some of the repercussions of that then we can create unnecessary strains and stresses um, often looking at more traditional cultures, say in perhaps at the time of the Buddha or in Africa when we look at the more uh, local tribal cultures uh, that, are, that we can witness to, that we work in 
uh, not to say that these, or, or in Asia sometimes, not to say that these cultures don't have their problems and shortcomings, but I notice that there's a more communal sense of self, a more knitted in sense of self, which allows for a belonging, that people grow up, how, for whatever, the problems that are there, which are, there are problems, often the problems are more to be individuated and stand out from those cultures, but there can be quite a strong sense of, there, there isn't, the anguish around do I belong or not, or where do I belong, or the, the feeling of being alienated. Uh, there's quite a healthy sense of placement and belonging and interconnectedness. Recently we we taught a, a retreat for about 25 Zulus at our hermitage. And uh, what was uh, interesting for me is that we, we put a a, row, um, a circle of cushions out and we were going to sit in the circle and we were going to do some meditative work, some very simple um, counts, work around counselling, because these are, these are people working in the community as home-based care workers responding to the AIDS crisis and developing counselling skills. And so we set out this circle and we came in, rather than as in, the, as in our culture where we all sit on our own zafu and we have our own space and, you know, keep your distance a little bit, please. <laughs> they were sort of sitting in heaps on top of each other and one was their baby who was strapped on the whole retreat and that wasn't a problem for any of them and they kind of stayed in heat throughout the whole retreat pretty much and it was just interesting to, to have this sense of the personal feeling of, of them being very very comfortable with just touching each other and leaning on each other and hugging each other and this feeling of, of their, their sense of uh, community and um, noticing when, like in India, for those that have been in India, go to India, it's often a, a real relief for us as Westerners because we, we suffer so much from this sense of alienation and this exaggerated sense of persona that we have to project and maintain. And it has to be interesting, what's more, and uh, <laughs> scintillating. But my experience in being in India was just this feeling of that dropping away into this more... It's a very vibrant uh, feeling of being part of a flow of life. Um, you, you walk out in the street and there's not just endless cars and concrete pavements, there's this, this real vibrancy and, and feeling of being uh, mingled with this flow of people and energy and, and allowing one this sense of a, a greater sense of belonging and self, um, which is actually quite quite pleasant, I think, quite a sense of relief. And uh, in the West, noticing, uh, coming back to England this time, I, I, I realised I felt quite um, quite disturbed, quite upset by just the, the power of traffic, the volume of cars. You know, everywhere one, except here, which is wonderful, but everywhere one goes, there seems to be either the sound of the cars or presence and how we all sort of sit in these metal boxes and hurtle along these concrete roads and get out and go into little um, stone houses and you know it's, it's not the feeling so much of mingling together it's sort of separated by concrete and metal and steel and and the sense of our personal space and and go into our house and switch on the TV and then sort of our, our contact or the computer screen is this slightly disembodied soulless narcissistic realm of imagery trying to sell things and entice one and project onto one what one should be and it's, it's you know everywhere you look there's this, this, this power of, of quite soulless um, imagery which seems to further and undermine the sense of you know I'm okay as I am <laughs> actually thank you <laughs> I don't need a facelift or a new car or you know to go and get a, a bottle of vodka or you know all the, the endless things that, that seem to be suggested that we need for our well-being and it, you know after a while it has an impact it has this kind of eroding impact so this this Often we, you know, we arrive on our meditation cushions and our zafis not necessarily intact in, in terms of feeling well and, and loved, accepted, um, full, um, 
Mm. Within ourselves, within our skin, we arise sometimes feeling a bit alienated, um, lack of self-worth, with an overdeveloped critical mind that uh, will never let us be at peace, never let us rest. And then we apply these teachings and uh, and can exaggerate the, the psychological wounding that's already there. And so it's not, it isn't my field, but it's just something I wanted to mention that we should just be aware of. And just a few examples that I wanted to reflect on about how this can manifest. And one of them is around this uh, supercritic that can form, um, the, the, the sort of the meditator's critic, <laughs> the meditator's judge, how we can set up, you know, from a place of idealism sometimes, we have enormous, because we're not that comfortable sometimes with ourselves, we can have these ideals about how we should be as meditators, how um, Buddhism should be, how meditators should be, how Guy Howe should be, how all these, you know, spiritual things should be, Uh, but mainly the most damaging one is how we should be, Um, and then along with that the, the critique of how we never quite match up, or never quite matches up. And uh, sometimes it takes quite a while to wise up to that and see that this internal judge is never ever satisfied. Uh, however much practice one does, however, yeah, uh, however much energy, I, 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 in the monastery, this one was particularly prone to that in the monastic setting, a very idealistic um, archetypal, powerful archetype of the, the monk or nun the bearer of enlightenment and uh, I remember one day I think it was the first time I began to get an insight into this relentless um, internal judge and uh, and I'd had this day where I'd done everything perfectly gotten up, jumped up, four o'clock alarm went, jumped, sprang out of bed, which I had to do otherwise I'd never make it, sprang out and um, scurried off to the meditation, went through the whole day doing the meditations, the pujas, the service, the whole thing, got to the end of the day, 10 o'clock or something, sat down and there was this feeling of, you know, it's not enough, you should sit up all night. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, what's that about? You know, you have to put in these perfect hours and instead of feeling great, I actually felt, um, felt miserable, felt quite miserable. And uh, it was the first insight to this, this. I didn't really have the psychological language in those days, but just feeling like this is uh, this is something that you know that I that I've been believing in. It's been driving me, and it's never allowing me to feel. Actually, these repeating patterns of, of worthlessness uh, that one had as a child, or not being validated, um, not good enough. It's not good enough, and so it, it takes time to uh, just to notice. Or the, the or the opposite of that is is being using spiritual practice to to feel special. You know, I'm different. You know, we don't because we don't often feel that sense of interconnection, of belongingness, and we've been we haven't had the sense of community. Um, we can feel alienated. Then we take on spiritual practices and we we become um, a bit narcissistic. You know, and have a special relationship to, to spirituality or I'm a bit aloof or I'm a bit apart. Um, I'm a meditator, I'm not like those guys out there, look at them, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it's, I mean, it, one can feel proud of oneself, but ultimately it's quite a lonely place to be. And uh, it's just the other side of the, the critical mind. It's, uh, alienates. Still one hasn't dissolved and, and really investigated the, the sense of, of self in relationship to other. There's still this alienation. Mm. When there's other there's other dynamics, I think, you know, perhaps the uh, sense of uh, not this whole the teachings around non-self, non-attachment can also be problematic if we don't pick them up carefully. They, I feel that they need to be 
it's not dismissing, it's not just um, prematurely dismissing our, our relation, our, our need to perhaps work more fully within the field of relationship. Maybe that's an area that's quite painful, difficult for us. Being in relationship, having contact, being intimate, and then we can, so it's a wonderful excuse of non-attachment. You can just uh, give permission to not have to deal with any of that sort of messy stuff of life. You know, sort of relationships that can go wrong and arguments and struggles and falling in love and falling out of love and all the kind of competition and jealousies and and take the stance of non-attachment and we don't have to deal with that thing. But what can happen then is is that we can we don't really um, prematurely close down our, our ability to be in contact, to be in relationship, and then uh, we can also land up feeling we haven't got access to our whole energy. Our whole energy is not there, it's not integrated yet. Uh, so non-attachment isn't in spite of the world, one's able, the more mature non-attachment is one's engaged, one's with it all, it's all happening, but the mind and heart is just learning little by little not to grasp, not to hold on, but to allow things to flow more organically. Another area that just to last area, I mean there's many different areas, I think all of these are familiar territories for me, just working with um, bringing about relative health of the self, the relative self, health of the relative self, little by little, not as an ultimate, not as an end in itself, but just to be able to be within one's skin and within the world in a more easeful way. There's a whole area of confusion around boundaries is quite an interesting one, compassion and boundaries. We've had people say to us, well, you're not very compassionate, which basically is translating, you're not giving me what I want. (laughs) 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 uh, You know, that feeling if you you say no, no, uh, sorry, I don't want to do that, or no, you can't have that, or um, no, I have, or acknowledging perhaps our needs. No, I need need to have my space, thank you. (coughs) But somehow we're not compassionate. But I notice that when I override just the sense of acknowledging the need, my needs with this ulterior idealism of compassion and then I land up resentful and irritable, uh, taken on too much, doing too much, or, or picking up too much of other people's problems. So for me it's been, as one of my therapist friends says, good uh, fences make good neighbours. <laughs> For me, that's been a real interesting area to explore how to, you know, how to recognise even the need for boundaries. Sometimes we can be so confused around that area, we don't recognise that there's a need to, to say, well, yeah, ultimately we're all one, but I'm not doing the dishes today, it's your turn. You know, there's, uh, ultimately, you know, <laughs> you know there's, there's uh, an area to negotiate, something to negotiate between the relative needs of the self and how to place them properly um, with relationship to other, while also knowing, yes, we are uh, ultimately all part of the one heart, the one mind. But however, saying all of that, uh, I think it's also true that we perhaps never iron out all the warts and pimples and, you know, get this perfect uh, functioning uh, we just do sense of self. We just do the best we can. But it's just I just think it would not for me now nowadays it wouldn't be it would be incomplete to not just mention this territory in relationship to these subtle teachings that the Buddha gave because um, I guess because of just having seen the results of not really acknowledging the need for relative. Health of the, for, for health of the relative self, so that's important. But it's not the end, it's also important to be able to know uh, a place where we transcend or can let go or 
see the limitation of self, whether it's a quietly wounded self or functioning, healthy, however it manifests. That we can work with that, but also know that uh, place where there is perfection, where it is okay. The spaciousness and the presence of the heart. Buddha said that <coughs> that you and I have wandered so much in, uh, in through the realms of birth and death, it's through not knowing, through not understanding uh, these four truths. So this was a teaching on the four noble truths that he gave, not really merely he didn't just pass it out here, there, and everywhere. He gave it into the right context when he felt people were ready when there was a, a maturity, a readiness, an ability to really reflect. And it was, as Kisara was saying last night, it was uh, the core of his teaching. It was the first teaching he gave. It was a teaching he came back to many, many times. And in many ways, it's a teaching that takes us the whole way to realization, realization and complete and utter freedom. So it's a, you know, we can say, oh God, I've heard, I've heard this so many times, or, you know, it's not just saying truth number one, number two, number three, number four, got it down, what's next? Must be something more subtle, more higher, Vajrayana teachings. But these are teachings to contemplate through a whole lifetime. And uh, they, what I like personally about these four truths is they're very accessible. They're very doable. They're not maybe easy to, to reflect on, always, you forget. But starting with there is the experience of dukkha, it's something that none of us can deny. As Kiri Sayo was saying last night, starting with the teaching of you're, you're actually already enlightened, there's nothing to attain, there's nowhere to get, there's nothing you're going to get that you haven't got already. Um, you can hear that thing, well that's great, but you know, next minute we're suffering like mad, so it doesn't necessarily resolve for us the, the issue of uh, struggle, conflict. So the Buddha started his first great teaching, the first turning of the wheel, the Dhamma Chakra wheel, which rolls through time and space from the Sipatane, the Deer Park, far enough to 1,548 years ago rolls through to uh, lineage of awakened ones through time and space. Buddha said this was a teaching that each Buddha points to. Uh, teaching is like, a, he said, it's like I, I've seen a path, overgrown path, traversed by the ancient ones and the enlightened ones of old, and I've re- re- you know, uncovered that path for, the, path for the welfare of all beings. This is the, the way of the four truths. And the, the Buddha said to, uh, after his enlightenment, and then he went to the deer park, walked from Budgaya to Varanasi, quite a long walk. I guess he had time to really contemplate how he was going to approach laying out this difficult notion of awakening, how best to approach that. And by the time he got to his uh, fellow ascetics that he'd practiced with, he had come up with this equation. There are there are these. Uh, there is this experience of dukkha. There is this experience of dukkha. Dukkha, that which is apart from the whole, that which is apart from the perfect, that which is dis-ease, unsatisfactory. There is this feeling of agitation. There is this feeling of not being complete. There is this feeling of, of discontent that we all experience, having taken incarnation and. Uh, and then his, his injunction was that that experience of dukkha needs to be turned to, it needs to be reflected on, it needs to be understood. It, it doesn't need to be repressed as some personal failing, oh my God, I'm experiencing suffering, there's something wrong with me, how we usually interpret it, something wrong, there's something wrong because I'm suffering, or oh, I'm struggling. Yeah. Or, or we project it onto the world. There's something wrong with the world outside. It's either the weather is wrong, or the place is wrong, or it's not quite right. Therefore, 
Um, we just don't, or we just don't pay attention to it. We don't like it, so we just have mechanisms of repression and denial. Nothing wrong with me. What do you mean? I'm fine. Thank you. Great. Uh, what's all that tension in your body? Oh, no, no, it's nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing I can't work out in the gym. Fine. <laughs> so this, this is a human experience and it's a gateway. It's a, what I call it an ennobling truth. It's a gateway for a more subtle insight. So in fact, it's a very mature point in our practice when we can experience dukkha and turn to it. Not avoid it, not repress it, not project it out and blame it, or not even some of us become martyrs. Look at me, there's no one suffering as much as me. Yeah, I'm a big sufferer. And, and so just to contemplate you know, the sense of disease, not, not to even solve it or to find meaning in it, just to be able that same quality of attention we've been using with breath, with body, to be able to bring the attention to the experience of dukkha whenever it arises. Which leads us, begins to reveal to us the second truth. When there's dukkha, it's usually, there's different kinds of dukkha. There's the dukkha of Buddha said, well, there's just what he called dukkha dukkha, which is basically dukkha that, that you can't really avoid, the dukkha of pain in your back or getting a bit old or, you know, just the dukkhas of life you know, that, uh, that the Buddha had, that everyone had. But the particular dukkha he was talking about comes from avijja, from an distorted relationship to the moments of our experience. So the, the contemplating dukkha begins to reveal to us what is actually generating, how are we, it's something that we're generating from ignorance, this kind of dukkha that the Buddha was talking about that one can be free from. It's something that we're doing, it's not being done to us. We're not a victim of it at, in, at that particular point. So the second truth is looking more carefully and unpackaging the mechanism that gives rise to this sense of a struggle. And basically it's the very themes that we've been looking at and contemplating on this retreat. The second noble truth is this constant projection onto the moments of our experience of it's not quite right, it shouldn't be like this, and it should be another way. I want and I don't want. Or this feeling of scanning the world through the senses for the perfect something, perfect form, perfect sight, perfect feeling, perfect taste. It will give us that feeling of fullness, completion. And of course, as we know, the more addicted we are to that, the, the more we can actually generate the, the vacuousness of this moment, seeing that this moment's a desert, that there's nothing here, that I don't actually innately possess uh, any fullness. So this, this sort of unconscious scanning for something to fill us, someone, some place, Something we just start to notice, not to judge or, 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 or to, to get, uh, to create a reactivity around, but just to notice that this is a, this is when we project that onto the moments of our experience and we generate suffering and struggle. What he called, uh, power tanha. Power tanha is just this feeling, of, some people have mentioned it in the small groups, just this feeling of wanting to become something or do something becoming, and this feeling of, it's not enough now, I'm not enough, I need to become something more than I am, than it is, which generates this movement into one activity after another, searching for something, uh, some new identity, some way to shape and form ourselves, and what's so tricky about talking about this, it's not that these are these aren't, you know, on a relative level, things that we need to engage with, but it's the unconscious relationship to that um, pressure that can emerge from a sense of lack of completeness and get translated into this feeling that if I shape myself into some new form, some new activity, uh, then it will feel, fill this, this longing, this vacuousness. 
just something to note when we sit here, it doesn't feel enough and we can feel that becoming energy. And we sometimes we'd, we'd rather become, um, you know, become anything really, rather than be nothing. We sit here and worry or sit here and fantasize. It can be quite subtle, that energy of becoming, especially on retreat when we don't have big things to absorb that energy. And, you know, we often feel, feel our sense of self by what we're doing. It's very compulsive. We define our sense of self by what we do, and then in retreat, there's not much to do, and be a bit dislocating, dis- disconcerting. So then that energy can translate into the more inner realms of fantasy or thought or um, projects, ideas, um, issues, memories. So again, it's just, it's just the unconscious, just to notice, this is this energy, just to notice that. When, we're, when it's unconscious, it, 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 gives, it gives this basic sense, it takes us away from exploring what is here and now, what's present here and now. And then the last form of twins or triplets, three forms of tanha or thirsting that the Buddha pointed to in the second truth, the second noble truth is when we become enough and we've done enough then we just want it to all shut down we want to turn the lights out get under the duvet and say goodbye sweet world had enough difficulty around fully being here this sort of un, sort of nagging thing underneath that just wants to dislocate or disassociate or move away all the time uh, going to dullness going to the feeling you get when the alarm goes off in the morning, what well, I get. Maybe you don't, maybe you jump up with great joy. <laughs> that sort of oh, <laughs> feeling or, you know, when you just wake up sometimes and that sort of consciousness between being fully awake and engaged and asleep when you, you know, delightfully unconscious. There's that, that feeling of just emerging into daylight you know, the sense of self and the whole thing starts to <coughs> flower forth and there can be, we can be like, oh great, I can't wait to get going if that's your tendency, if you're someone like me it's just like, oh, this feeling of whipple we're done there can be quite strong resistance resisting the flow of life and these, these, are these patterns, these tanhas are ancient they're very, you know, they're uh, ancient Sankharic formations that form and shape uh, our sense of abiding as a self. And so it's just this, this is Vipassana, the work of Vipassana is just having moments of perhaps, moments of illuminating these different forms that get projected onto this moment that generate this feeling of unsatisfactoriness. It's not enough now. And we might have a moment where we just see, oh, that's that's the desire not to be here. That's great. And you see it, when, and the seeing of it, that which is seeing it, is not the, that movement, that energetic movement. That which is seeing it is in a place of fullness, a place of stability, a place of presence. So it's not that one has to get rid of these energies or do anything or follow them particularly, but just the seeing of them and this gently and slowly, and or perhaps not gently, maybe speedily, hopefully, <laughs> but purifying them through our knowing of them. And so those energies can be of service, can be illuminated. Not that the energy is necessarily wrong, it's just the unconscious relationship. So the Buddha says the first noble truth is dukkha that needs to be understood. second noble truth, there are these forms of tanha, of thirsting, that need to be let be or let go of, to not be grasped, just to be seen for what they are. And when that's happening, it introduces us and opens us into the third truth. The third truth is about the realization of Nibbana, that which is just timeless, which is just present. When the mind's no longer grasping, seeking, avoiding, pushing away, scanning the world, and it's just opening, releasing, present, then we notice that which we haven't noticed before. We notice the, the background or the, the heart and mind just as it is, the suchness of the moment, the sense of presence, 
it's a sense of fullness, a sense of spaciousness. So the third truth, this third noble truth of Buddhism, is not something you have to, to go and get, go out to the shopping basket and go shopping for it. In the spiritual supermarket, you, not that you don't already have that, it's just something we haven't realised, we haven't recognised. It's like not recognising the space in the room. We recognise all the forms and whether we like them or not, or whether they're fascinating or not. We recognise all the moods of the heart, you know, they're like, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm confused, I'm depressed, I'm going, I'm staying, I'm in love, I'm not, I've fallen out, I don't know, I know. We recognise all the manifold dramas and issues, but we don't notice the space within which it's all happening, the presence of the heart and mind, the awareness, that which is, which is, which is now, which was which is this morning, which is in the middle of the night when we wake up, go to the bathroom, if you're getting older, <laughs> big bladder, <laughs> or which is when the bell goes in the morning in spite of the whistle of thunder, which is going, oh, not another day. <laughs> so this third noble truth of Buddha needs to be recognised, turned to, open to. Nothing to attain, nothing to grasp, just relaxed into, to be noticed. And then the, the fourth truth, the, the way of deepening our understanding of this process, the path, the path which covers all aspects of our life, the path of awakening which needs to be developed, cultivated, we're doing on this retreat, little by little, drawing in not only our retreat, but our speech, our activity, our karmic activity, all aspects of our life drawn into this activity of path. There is eightfold path which needs to be cultivated, developed. The Buddha said that ultimately it's not that we are doing all of this, it's happening and it's the activity of cultivating Path, path activity, moments of mindfulness, moments of awareness, moments of investigation that little by little break up that which obstructs our ability to see clearly, to know clearly that deathless element, that which is always present here and now, to be turned to, to be realised, to be open to, to know as our true resting place, as our true home. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.